0: Hello, this is Claire Connolly and welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. This week we have investor Dean Dorrell, principal at Cathona Capital and freelance journalist Paul Wallbank joining us on the couch. Twister is sponsored by Spaceship, where you can invest your super in the tech companies you know and love. Find out more at spaceship.com.au. Today is the 21st of March and we are here in the studio with investor Dean Dorrell and journalist Paul Wallbank. Thank you for joining us both for our super News special of This Week in Startups Australia. We're here to discuss all the latest in tech headlines and how we can do better. Thank you for joining us. So this week uh, we've had about seven days worth of fury and rhetoric over Australia's so-called gas crisis uh, where we've seen the federal government pitted against almost the business and startup community with people like uh, Tesla's Elon Musk and Atlassian's Mike Cannon Brooks throwing down the gauntlet on social media claiming they can hook up South Australia's electricity to Tesla Powerwalls within 100 days. It kind of made it quite abundantly obvious how seriously this government has taken sustainability now about 12 months ago Malcolm Turnbull came to power on one of the promises was to do more to commercialise Australian research not long afterwards the CSIRO was restructured for this very purpose but now 12 months down the line south australia had one power failure and we're starting to see the results of a lack of investment on this level I was hoping to get both of your perspectives on industry on this. I know I've had some conversations during the week with people working in sustainability and they say that most of their colleagues are either packing them bags or literally counting the dollars in their bank account because they can't get uptake for the research in Australia. What is the investor appetite for things like sustainability and renewability in terms of technology and administration?
1: Well, I think a lot of it comes back to politics. So sustainability, uh, electricity, power generation are all incredibly important for the country. And the government has a big role in what's going on. And to think of the political situation uh, in the country, it's unbelievably bad, I believe. Uh, There's factional politics, uh, both at state and government level. Uh, It's incredibly difficult to get anything done, it's clear. I think Malcolm Turnbull does have, in terms of technology and innovation, uh, he has that um, bent to to what he wants to achieve. But um, the general state of politics makes that very difficult. So from an investor, when you're relying on politics uh, and the state of politics to give support to such an important area, for me personally, I want to stay away as far away from it as I can.
0: Do you think that that's sort of detrimental to people that are working on otherwise really great technology that could be making a viable difference?
1: I think that I think that's true. Uh, I think that it's a long-term game. And Let this be clear: that South Australia power outage is um, a function of many, many years, decades, perhaps, of underinvestment and lack of of long-term planning.
0: Uh, Personally, I wrote a column on this very topic for au, which you can go out and check out yourself, or you could type the gas crisis is bullshit into Google, and it should be the number one thing that comes up.
2: And just to reiterate what Dean just said, I think one of the big problems we've got here, there's a real sovereign risk these days in Australia with all government policy. And uh, just going on to the pure startups and research side of things, we saw it when the Rudd government came in, they abolished the Comet scheme, the commercialisation scheme, And I had friends with startups who had, they were ready to go. They'd spent tens of thousands of dollars putting in the submission. Uh, They were told by the public servants, it's ready for the minister to sign. The new the Labour government comes in, abolishes Comet, and they're left high and dry. Fast forward six years, and you've got Commercialisation Australia. And in fact, some of my friends who were in exactly the same position with Comet were in exactly the same position with Commercialisation Australia. They were ready to go with the funding under the Rudd government, and Abbott-Candit. And this is a real problem now for investors in Australia.
0: So I imagine that creates quite a lot of risk for people who are developing technologies and who are working in startups that could have a marked difference on our economy, on cutting 20 minutes off transport, for example, for people not living in a suburban or regional or even like inner city area. I imagine there's a lot of good things that could be happening if only the government would just get out of the way.
2: Well, let's take that a step back Claire and on that um, for the startup community we've been there with this uncertainty in politics um, ourselves we've seen this with the Rudd government we had the Comet Grants where uh, the commercialization of technologies and that lots of startups in that 2006-2007 period got caught out by the Comet Grants being uh, canned when Rudd came into power and then when the Labour Party lost they had Commercialization Australia which they'd set up to replace the Comet Grants and again Abbott canned those. So, a start, and I, I actually know people who they were caught out when the comic grants were killed by Rudd, and then they were caught out again when Commercialization Australia was canned by Abbott. Um, so, this is a problem right across the board, and we're seeing it at the moment with things like the crowdfunding legislation, uh, all the taxation, the equity options, all of that sort of thing. This could be changed tomorrow. A new minister comes in. Not even a change of government. Just a new minister has to come in. And the whole legislative framework we've got. Just on my hobby horse on this, we see a lot of cant around... Israel being a startup center, and it's because the, the nation is in danger, and they're all in the military and this sort of thing. The truth is, the Israeli government takes a long term view on development. Same in the in the UK, all the tech city UK, and that that's lasted across several administrations. It doesn't get changed at the drop of a hat. So they've got long term Nestor again in the UK. They've got these long term. Um, programs and agencies that don't get um, messed around with every time a minister changes or every time the prime minister has a brain fart. And this is a real problem now in Australia. So for any startup that's looking at having to do things around government policy... Um, whether it's giving your employees options or whether it's uh, taking subsidies from the Victorian government or whatever, this could change tomorrow.
0: Wasn't the ideas boom meant to sort of insulate the market from these kind of dramatic political changes that you set up a bunch of legislation to allow greater access for investors into commercialized research of which sustainability was really quite top of the list. Now, I mean, I've spoken to a number of different people working in sustainability startups. I can't name them because they're still trying to do business, one of them walked away from their business because the only barrier to success was working with state governments and with local councils, and they couldn't get it off the ground for love or money, and it would have made energy and water more accessible to rural and regional areas, but they had to walk away. When they sound, when they heard about it, everyone wanted to, to pick up the phone and wanted to take meetings with this guy, but he said the minute it came to implementation... They really just, it sounded like a great idea. It sounded like a great thing to do on a Wednesday to go and take someone for a coffee, but they weren't serious about it.
2: This was government, was it, Claire?
0: Yeah, it was state and local council.
2: Yeah, and this is one of the things that I learned having worked for the government was that they're great at having coffee. They're great at wasting your time, but when it comes to actually implementing this stuff, you've got to have a minister or a premier or a prime minister on board. And even then, as we saw with the ideas boom, we saw with the digital transformation office, the moment the the moment the political leadership loses interest, and in Malcolm's case, that could be seventy two hours. Um, it's all over, Red Rover. You may as well have been that. that a coffee, I hope it was nice because that's all you're going to get from it.
0: Silicon Valley Tech Accelerator Powerhouse 500 Startups is landing in Australia, setting up shop in Melbourne, pumping money and expertise into the state's startup ecosystem. It has largely been received in the press, however, as a diss on Sydney and its business community. Attracting accelerator programs is good for every state, so why is this being interpreted as a competitive win for Victoria against the rest of the country? Dean,
1: I think it's quite an Australian story, to be honest. Where you know the the beginning of the country was uh, before federation, the states were pretty uh, antagonistic towards each other. So um, you know, if you look at the US, there are you know competing startup areas. There's one dominant place, but if you think about Boulder, you think about Austin, New York, all these different places that have got strong startup communities. Now. In the US, that's not driven by uh, state governments doing things particular for those communities. I think here it's a bit of an arms race. I've, mm. I've said this before that I see people really pushing a particular area as as self-interest, and you can understand self-interest. Um, but as an investor, we're very happy to invest in every single state, in every single place, every single city, in the in regional parts of Australia too, because good people aren't, all in one place Uh, and if you narrow down your options you might miss the next big thing now when it comes to government um frankly i think entrepreneurs have to deal with many many risks if there is one big risk of being of your business being killed which is uh state or, or federal government regulation then you can understand why entrepreneurs don't go down that route because it's a big, big risk. You're trying to minimise all those risks. It's difficult enough trying to find a product market fit without trying to second-guess what a government will do today, let alone what they might do tomorrow.
0: What, In terms of profitability, how profitable are sustainable uh, businesses? Like, is, is there a big margin for investors to make, and would you be investing in them if the climate were different?
1: Look, I think there's no doubt that some of the biggest problems to solve are to do with sustainability, to do with energy, uh, to do with climate. There's no doubt about that. The timeframes are very, very long, so that also is a factor in determining uh, an investment horizon. Um, I think, undoubtedly, there are, there's a lot of money to be made from doing it, um, but it's a big boy's game.
2: A big boy as and a long term game too. Yeah. And I mean and I think this is something we need to be really careful of. When we're talking about the startup community, if we're talking about that Silicon Valley modern tech startup timeframe, uh, time frame, you are at the most maybe looking at a three, five 8 year time frame at the most um, whereas some of these some of these bigger plays in energy even in healthcare pharma these sort of things these are things with 15 20 year 50 year time frames i mean you look at some somebody like GE and developing a new jet engine or something these are huge expenses up front um, developing new medicines in pharma um, really big upfront investments as opposed to that lean agile start tech startup model so we've got two different Models there, but going back to that state rivalry too, and we do see some of that in the U.S. But I think what happened there was in the tech sector, California and Silicon Valley had blown it out of the water simply because of the sheer amount of money that went into funding technology during the Cold War, the Space Race, and World War II. So there was nowhere really except maybe that corridor of Boston, Massachusetts, uh, that really competed with it at all. But uh, you you do see that state rivalry there um, between, say, the movie industries. And this is, again, New South Wales is very good at throwing seven-figure sums at movie industries and then losing them to Louisiana or uh, or Texas or something. And that actually happened with the Green Lantern.
0: I mean, it probably wouldn't hurt, though, that if we are going to make whatever area of Australia appealing for business, you have to keep their money at the end of the day. So I don't understand why you'd grant a $50 billion film to be edited and cut in Australia if you're also going to give them a $50 billion tax break. Cause that just means you yeah. have used all of our resources. For
2: and this is, this is the problem with LaunchVic and what they're doing at the moment with attracting 500 startups, in my view, is that they really should be looking at organic growth. And then we've seen this with the movie industry, and New South Wales is the biggest player in that. And we've thrown, in New South Wales, we've thrown a lot of money at that industry for very little return over the last 20 years of trying to get Warner Brothers into film Superman 57 and this sort of thing. Um, and we do, we throw huge amounts of money at that. The Victorian government, and I, I gleefully put on my blog uh, yesterday, uh, pointing out that Jeff Kennett back in 1998. Opened up the Netscape Australian office in Melbourne, which I think from memory had taken like $3 million of Victorian government's money to open that. What did it do? Absolutely nothing. Fast forward 20 years, the Sydney startup scene, the Sydney tech scene, way ahead of the Melbourne one. And yes, I get it, Melbourne's catching up now. And for anyone listening who's grinding their teeth about me being too Sydney centric, I grew up in Melbourne. So I have a lot of sympathy for the Melbourne chip on the shoulder towards Sydney. But um, it really didn't do much. And I look at um, funding 500 startups. I see that as sucking a lot of the oxygen out of the Melbourne scene. And the same with tech stars going into Adelaide. A lot of the homegrown people are now finding that they're having to work in the shadow of these big American companies coming in. And in fact, this is similar to Elon Musk. There's a lot of energy entrepreneurs here in Australia who've been trying to get through the doors of state governments and federal government for for decades in some cases, and no one's answered their call. All of a sudden, Elon Musk says, hey, I can do this, and the politicians are falling over themselves. So the big guy comes in riding his horse from America, and everyone wants to talk to him. The locals who've who've got real value to add, who could be building indigenous industries here, are being ignored, and so the American interloper comes in and the poor old local finds themselves uh, uh, at best being employed um, to sweep the floors there.
0: We're going to talk a lot more about Elon Musk, Tesla, and his throwdown to the federal government after the break. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Claire Connolly with a reminder to visit our Tumblr at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com to find all the information you need to succeed as a startup, entrepreneur, or investor, including links to the Startup Muster Report, photos of our guests, and all our other podcasts. There's a whole lot there, so visit our Tumblr at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. Famed entrepreneur and madman Elon Musk, founder of Tesla and the Tesla Powerwall, has thrown the gauntlet down to Australian's federal government, promising it can hook up South Australia's electricity within 100 days, or he'll do it all for free. Dean, Paul, does this highlight the Australian federal government's reticence to embracing new commercialised renewable energy technology?
1: Probably. I think the, uh, the major effect has been the fact that using new technology, using Twitter, Mike Cannon-Brooks and Elon Musk can tweet each other, say mates rates, and what does it get? It gets an absolute focus on an issue that's incredibly important to the country. Without that, what would we be doing? Six months' time, a year? Would we wait for two more blackouts, three more blackouts? Are we going to wait till Sydney has a blackout, until we do something about it? Look, whatever it happens, Elon Musk and Mike Cannon-Brooks have brought this to the top of the political agenda, and something's going to be done about it. We can see that. There's a race to get something done in the next 100 days, whether it's hopefully by Australian technology. That would be great. If it's not, then it's... It's Tesla technology, but someone's going to do something to get it done. And cutting through government lethargy is such an important thing.
0: Do you think there's a confusion between lethargy and red tape and that the red tape is used as a convenient scapegoat for doing something when it's actually just creating more of the same?
1: Yeah, I think lethargy, red tape, factional politics, let's face it, Malcolm wants to get stuff done. We just can't do it. Mm. I think uh, I wouldn't use any of
2: those terms. I I think this is uh, laziness and hubris. I I think we've got a political class and, for that matter, a corporate class in Australia at the moment that's had twenty five years with no recession they're playing they're playing all of these sandpit games on on trivial issues that don't really matter we've got this 24-hour news cycle that really um is um is julie bishop wearing red socks today hmm? is uh, um is section uh, whatever it is uh, is this going to get up is barnaby joyce going to leave the national party We've bogged down in those things and missing the major issues that are happening in the and the energy market. This is Andrew Leveris, the um, I think he's now the former Dow Jones um, CEO, Australian guy, he's been flagging this energy crisis coming down the pipeline now for the last 10 years. Every press conference I've been where he's been here, he's been saying that the national energy market, particularly in the gas area was going to cripple Australian industry. And everything he pred- predicted happened. Now, um, on top of that, we saw it with the number two guy, uh, John Rice from GE, at the b twenty two years ago, sitting next to Joe Hockey. And they were all going on about the carbon tax. And he cut through that discussion and said, the question Australians have to ask is, how did you go in a decade from being the second cheapest G20 country for energy costs to the second most expensive? And no one cares. Um, and th- th- so while we're all saying, how hey, what wonderful rocket scientists we are for buying a property in Punchbowl and watching it double in the last decade, um, now we're, uh, we're now reaping, ignoring all of this. The ASX has gone nowhere for a decade uh, because Australian corporates aren't investing. They're playing the same games that the politicians are.
0: It might be worth adding, Australia has the highest solar irradiance almost mm. in the world, mm. at least in the OECD. We have less solar panels than Germany. And the solar panels that we do have don't feed into the grid. I mean, even the West, I mean, the input that I would make as an individual to the grid would pale into comparison to, say, a Westfield, for example. But if they had solar panels, they would reduce their air conditioning for all of their buildings and they would plug their excess into the grid subsidizing the cost of energy for everyone mm. instead it ends up being more expensive for business and more expensive for consumers and yeah. it costs more to maintain mm. i mean i don't know where we go with this but if they put us in charge i think that we'd get a lot done and
1: whilst at the same time australia is about to become the biggest producer of lng in the world mm. so there isn't an energy crisis in australia so the fact is that we don't keep it on shore yeah.
2: And again, I think this is part of that laziness, that it's uh, cheaper to ship that stuff offshore than it is to do stuff with it on, in continental Australia. Well, that's and what
0: happens when you increase the cost of energy to run on parity with Asian markets. I mm. mean, we're literally paying foreign prices domestically. Shouldn't domestic prices be the domestic price and the foreign price be the foreign but, price? But
2: um, just t- turning that back to startups again, same thing again, that um, you have seen institutional investors in Australia... Pouring money into those um, into those LNG plants and so on, very little going into any other productive capacity in Australia, whether it's in agriculture, whether it's in urban industries. Uh, we're hollowing out the economy, and uh, we um, we just have not. This is part of my frustration with Malcolm Turnbull and the ideas boom. I thought this guy was going to change the game. We were going to get back to focusing on where the Australian economy goes in the 21st century. Instead, he doubled down on housing, mining and uh, exporting LNG. Going coal, yes.
0: You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Claire Connolly. Twister is well into its fifth season and with guests like Paul Shetler, Wyatt Roy, Dean Dorrell and Paul Wallbank, we're going bigger than ever to cover the issues that matter to the startup community. If you want to help support this podcast and reach thousands of entrepreneurs and investors who listen, please contact us at sponsor at twistartupsaus.com. So we're going to jump in to talk about what startups get wrong about press, the media and getting press coverage. It's been a rocky week for technology and transport startup Uber. Its own co-founder and CEO Travis Kalanick quit Trump's advisory panel. It lost its president Jeff Jones over internal conflicts and it follows a fortnight from a rather disruptive medium post from a former female employee that mentioned all manner of double standards for male and female staff, including but not limited to leather jackets. Uh, for those who haven't read the article, Uber thought as a nice promotional, feel-good strategy to to keep up morale, it would order team jackets for the, all of the staff at Uber. And then when it came down to it, the female staff found out they weren't going to be getting any jackets because there were simply not enough women in the company to bother making jackets for in the first place. You can check this all out on Medium. Uh, if you just type into Google Medium, Uber... I, that should probably just do the trick. But there seems to be a, a bit of a misunderstanding A, about the role of the press, and B, what happens when you stop being a disruptive company vying for marketing through the media and start becoming a serious business. And I think we're starting to see that this week with Uber. Uh, Dean, can I get your perspective on, uh, from your perspective dealing with the press from an investor side of things, what are some of the things that maybe Paul and myself could be getting right? And do you have any advice for Uber going forward about how it deals with its public perception?
1: I think Uber, you know, they're playing the game of uh, using the press everywhere they go. So to be called out in the press is that's all part of it. If they behave badly and there's undoubtedly uh, things that they've got wrong, they need to be called out for it. We all need them to be called out for it. And that's where the press has a a big service to to the community. One thing I think to point out is that Uber uh, is a disruptive force. And in many places, they needed to be a disruptive force. If we think about the utility that Uber has brought to many of us, uh, one of the things I often like to ask people is do you use the search? If you use Surge, you're really, really emphasizing their business model, which means more drivers on the road when you would never be able to get a taxi. Now, um, being a disruptive force is one thing, and sticking two fingers up to, to legislation and ignoring legislators is one thing. Treating your employees, uh, and that includes the drivers, you know, and Travis has been seen berating a driver, uh, not treating uh, female employees right is a completely different matter. And I think somehow they've mixed that up uh, and it is completely unacceptable. Um, In terms of dealing with the press, um, people need in the end to work out what they want to achieve. If you're a startup, what do you want to achieve? You know, there's this whole idea that, all press is good press. That's not necessarily true. <clears throat> you need to work out, what do I want to achieve? Do I want to find more investors? Do I want more customers? And that also determines where do you get the press. If you get press in the, in the financial press, well, that's mostly investors that you're you're targeting. <clears throat> if it's more general press, well, there might well be more customers out there. So the first thing I always say to portfolio companies that, that I'm involved with is, what do you want to achieve? And then let's work from there.
0: Paul, you've had some run-ins <laughs> we might put generously with startup founders mm. um what advice do you have for well, being dean's startup.
2: advice is spot on i mean that's the first when a startup comes to me or, or anyone really that comes to me and says i want to get press the first question i ask is What's your objective? What do you want? Do you want do you want um, investors? Do you want employees? Do you want users? Um, uh, do you want to make an exit? If you remember back when the um, when that group buying boom was happening, there were like twenty different startups here in Australia, and they all started popping up on the Qantas Q channel and in the financial review talking about agro and you could see that they were all looking for exits they were looking for potential buyers only one of them really found one but um but that was really what they were trying to do was that uh, and you could see that that was their objective they had good PR there I think the problem and this is part of the Uber problem is that a lot of the tech press and I think we're as guilty of it as anybody although I think the U.S tech press tends to be even more fawning than the Australian press, but we do tend to be a little less than, as critical as we could be when we're talking about we try to be positive, we try to be upbeat so I think Uber got away with a lot um. To be fair to Uber, I think their douchebaggery culture in management is not just an Uber problem. This is a problem across business. It's a prob- certainly a problem in Silicon Valley in the startup community, but I think it's a broader problem. We're seeing it here in Australia with Channel 7. Um, and very very similar culture, um, in a very very staid industry, and I'm sure that we've all got friends who've got terrible stories of working at law firms and advertising agencies and so on. This is a pretty uh, this this sort of behaviour, unfortunately, is still pretty gra- ingrained in a lot of in a lot of people in industry. And so, uh, but uh, they got away with a lot. Uber did. We we were all fawning over them, we were all gushing over them, and then all of a sudden the good press turned to bad press. One of the things that I would like any startups that are listening to this podcast to take away though is that in the media we're not your friends we're not if you want if you want to buy advertising if you want marketing hire a pr agency um stick an ad in the financial review or the women's weekly or whatever the hell it is that you think is your marketplace we are journalists we're there to report and if we think you're doing the wrong thing and if there are people saying to us that you're doing the wrong thing we're going to report that. So all of this stuff about tall poppies and being positive about the industry, that's your job. That's not our job. Our job is to report what's in front of us. And if it looks like you're doing the wrong thing or it looks like there are concerns of whatever to be raised, then we're doing our job when we raise them. We're not there to wave pom-poms for you.
0: (laughs) Certainly the rule, I think, about what we cover needs to be... A little more strictly controlled particularly when we're trying to sell advertising or papers are trying to sell advertising mm. there is a lot of space in advertising for nice cushy features about the next disruptive startup but the role of the press is to be adversarial the role of the press is to go sniffing through your dirty laundry and to find out what dodgy business practices you're bringing with you when you announce your latest IPO it is not the job of the press to help you put it dollar figure on your balance sheet. And I Mm. think both Paul and I have found ourselves over the years in situations where we have literally been punished for doing our jobs. Um, In some instances, personally, I've lost jobs over it and I've had stories deleted over it. Mm. I don't really think that's good practice for journalism at all, ever, anywhere, but particularly not in the tech press. And I think it is interesting, let's remember as well, that Kalanick was praised, and I'm going to put that generously, for disrupting political correctness before he'd even started Uber because he had the tenacity to start a revenge porn website Mm. where, you know, uh, scorned lovers could post nudes and and explicit videos of their exes as, as a form of revenge. And this was, you know, not burying the lead type situation. You know, this is second par type of coverage, and so when you bring that kind of machismo into your business model and into your marketing strategy, and then turn around and say, but you weren't nice to me in the press, and we're going to track down journalists and dig up dirt, which Mm. is what he said, by the way, at a correspondence dinner Mm. at or around the White House about three years ago, Um, and I think maybe other startups are starting to follow in their example because they know how low-risk publishing is these days and knowing that they can maybe push us around a little more than they might otherwise have been able to but maybe if we just had better advertising practices it could actually solve both of these problems at the same time Mm.
2: well and this is the thing that um, startups and well business in general has to realize is that the the media is changed the forces that have changed the media now changing PR and advertising as well. Um, the, the PR and advertising people, I'm surprised at how long they've got away with it while the rest of the media model collapsed around them, but now it's being to bite on them. And again, this is for smart PR, for, sorry, for smart startups and smart businesses, this is a great opportunity to really fill that vacuum. Uh, whether they, and I, to a degree, I'd argue that Uber did that, that um, they got a lot of free publicity by, as you say, um uh disrupting the market everyone hated the taxi industry um so coming in and smashing and Sydney and Melbourne taxi industry was... London was a bit different but um but around the world France Thailand lots of people didn't like the um, taxi industry which gave us a lot of um gave them a lot of free publicity
0: Well, that's all we've got time for here this week in Startups Australia. I'd like to thank Dean Dorrell, investor and commentator extraordinaire, for coming to join us, and journalist Paul Warbank. Thank you very much for being here. Welcome. Thank you. We've been quite generous this season about startups not having to rely on government for business success, but particularly when it comes to renewables and sustainable energy It's pretty clear that A, the federal government does not take the commercialization opportunities and potential for revenue seriously, and B, the ideas boom didn't go far enough. We've had some hard truths on the podcast this week, and that's the job, and we're proud to do it. We'd like to thank Carthona Capitals, Dean Dorrell, and freelance journalist Paul Wallbank for their candor. Twister would like to extend a big thanks to Spaceship for their sponsorship, and thank you to Felix Warmuth and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work creating a podcast that is a joy to listen to. We'll be back in a fortnight with our first space special for Series 5. Until then, this is Claire Connolly, thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.